0: Hello everyone, my name is Vanessa Menendez-Covello and this is the Fresh Needle podcast where I interview fresh graduates and acupuncture students from all over the world and we discuss their experiences as students or running their own clinics, particularly in these very weird times of COVID-19. I want to tell you about an amazing opportunity that is opening up for new graduates who are looking to build their acupuncture practice. Nava Karman is a leading acupuncturist and herbalist specializing in fertility, gynecology and the immune system. She has run the fertility support company for over 20 years. Nava is launching a new mastermind group exclusively for new graduates. This mastermind group will meet every two weeks to provide mentoring, guidance and inspiration, and will focus on clinical skills and the practicalities of building a business. This will be a close-knit group of practitioners who will work together for a year to develop the skills and habits required to be clinically effective and financially successful. I recently did a session with Nava, and what I liked the most about it is how safe I felt about discussing my fears and worries. I came out of it with a list of very practical, achievable steps to implement change. There are only six places in the group, so you need to apply quickly. Go to www.fertilitysupport.expert forward slash graduate. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Fresh Needle podcast. I am Vanessa Menendez Covello, and our guest today is Mel Hopper-Koppelman. Mel has a licentiate in ac- acupuncture from the Northern College in Acupuncture. And an MSc in acupuncture as well from the University of Central Lancashire, both in the UK. She then went on to found her own clinic, and soon after that, she became interested in nutrition, which led her to complete a master's degree in human nutrition and functional medicine at the University of Western States. Mel is also the Executive Director of Evidence-Based Acupuncture, a nonprofit organization dedicated to improving public health through better information about acupuncture's considerable evidence base. She is also a research supervisor and guest lecturer at the Northern College of Acupuncture's master's program in York, UK. Welcome Mel.
1: Thank you very much.
0: I am so excited to have you on the show. So thank you very much for um, connecting.
1: It's great to be here. Thank you for the opportunity.
0: So the first thing, you know, I've, I've known you online for a little while now. And the first thing that um, really jumped at me, probably because it, it I, I love these things, is you are brainy and you are unapologetically brainy. And I grew up in Spain in the 80s where the social convention where that women would do art, interior decorating, nothing wrong with that, and men would do the science um, so because I was a scientist, I always found myself really alone, particularly imagine in a computer science program. But when I went into the CCA, um, a lot of the female faculty were very research-oriented and it was fantastic to see that.
1: Yeah, it's, it's funny. I it's, That's something that I am lucky enough to really not think about very much. And I realize now it's because my mom uh, is... Actually, brainier than I am. So, she um, she's retired now, but she was a medical doctor and a researcher. So, she was a researcher for the NIH in you know, the 1970s, 1980s, and she graduated first in her class from medical school. Um, so, it never. Uh, occurred to me that women were supposed to be doing arts and and the men were supposed to be doing the science. So, so that's nice. And so in a way that, you know, it means that I can free up a lot of my headspace because I don't have to overcome being a woman in science because it doesn't occur to me that it should be a problem. So do you ever get imposter syndrome? Um, I suppose like everyone I can do, but I don't identify with it anymore. So maybe when I was uh, younger, if I felt that way, that sort of um, maybe the image that other people have is not how I feel on the inside. And you think that that's true. Sometimes you have those stories. Now, if that happens, I know that my uh, brain function isn't working as well and that I probably just need to take a break. Yes, it's really interesting because, um, you know, I, I I have
0: suffered from imposter syndrome, but uh, being actually a science person, I tend to fight it with data. <laughs> so when I feel like someone, um, you know, thinks or, or I am imagining that someone thinks less of me, then. I kind of list my achievements inside my
1: head, and, and that's the
0: data, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely, and that can be helpful. And but to be honest, I have found sort of in this phase of my life, being—I uh, guess I say like a scientifically literate woman—I found I find being a woman actually to be uh, an asset rather than a detriment, because I think it allows me to communicate with, I suppose, both men and women, but even men in a way that may seem like less threatening, perhaps. Um, and so they're really, you know, anything can be either uh, an advantage or a liability, depending on how you look
0: at it. That is um, really interesting. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to actually take that down the line of communication, because, Um, I can totally see the whole thing about maybe uh, by virtue of being a woman, we could present as less threatening. But a part of the problem I've I've had, I've been in the UK for 20 years now, uh, but it is my Mediterranean way of speaking, which is very frank. (laughs) So I actually have annoyed a lot of people with the way I say things, even though I guess my mother really tried to to teach me to, I don't know, to, to be a bit less blunt in my speech. That's
1: funny. Well, I think also some of it is cultural as well. So uh, there can be, you know, and I, I lived in the UK for 10 years, um, being fr- originally from the United States. And, you know, there are, you know, like you say, there's different cultural norms where it's okay to be blunt in certain cases, and that's not taken personally or in a threatening manner Uh, and then in a different context it's considered to be rude or um, or not acceptable and so I think we just you know there's just a lot to learn Um, and I think one theme is really about being adaptable um, and being able to figure out how we can shift our energy to make it appropriate and effective for where we are without completely losing ourselves.
0: Yes. And when I worked in investment banking, they actually sent us on a lot of um, seminars around cross-cultural communication, because we had offices mostly in New York. So my, my remit was New York, London, and then it would be sometimes Hong Kong, but more often uh, Bangalore in India. And it's really difficult because on the one hand, you want to acknowledge the culture of, of the people that you're speaking to. On the other hand, you don't really want to fall into easy characterization or, or you know, or you don't want to be unfair to someone just because they come from a, from a certain culture. But it was more or less an accepted norm that um, the British people were going to be, were going to say things in a less direct way. <laughs> I don't know how to say this without being problematic, but I'm going to go for it. Um, the American people were going to be much franker about it. And this used to cause a bit of conflict sometimes and then the people from india would be extremely extremely polite and would find difficulty sometimes saying no
1: it sounds sounds challenging it, uh, it does it i don't i don't have that experience um so much with that type of role but it you know definitely brings up some interesting issues
0: yeah i guess that you know as acupuncturists we're all not always in a one to one situation so it it's easier in a way mm-hmm. I don't know, just food for thought. <laughs> so um, functional medicine. So functional medicine is big at the moment. And um, I myself have had the experience from the patient's point of view that I have been seeing a functional nutritionist for a few months now. And I have loved it. I'm fascinated. Um, I, I love data. I love data and functional medicine uses a lot of data. Chinese medicine does as well, just in a different way. But I... I really want to study functional medicine, but I want to do herbs first. So how much of an in- impact has your functional medicine training had in your acupuncture practice, and how do you marry the two?
1: Mm, yeah, it's um, it's a constantly evolving process. Um, I also enjoy data, and I think, it's, first, it's helpful uh, maybe just to have a think about what we mean when we talk about functional medicine, because in my mind, functional medicine is using uh, a very similar framework to Chinese medicine. And actually, functional medicine, as it was developed um, here in the United States by a few MDs, was really based on Chinese medicine and Ayurveda. So uh, in terms of the framework, I think that they're very analogous, very similar. And so that's important to note because what I have found is that the framework is often more important than the specific piece of information. And, and that's really where, um, you know, it's helpful for us when we're communicating with our patients and also understanding incoming information. So sometimes, you know, we'll have an experience of a patient saying, you know, what can I take for, migraines or insomnia and we're kind of, you know, what, what do you mean? What can you take? You know, we need to know the pattern. And um, if there was, I would say like, if there was a specific supplement that worked for sleep, like we would know about it, you know? So that's probably not a good question or the most helpful question. Um, So, so that, you know, that's, I think that's an important point. And so when it, came to, uh, I studied Chinese medicine first and then I studied functional medicine and that was um, giving me some of the biochemistry to go within the framework I'd already learned. And I really distinctly remember um, doing a biochemistry course and having this kind of profound feeling of, oh my gosh, I'm so grateful that I studied Chinese medicine and Yin Yang theory before attempting to study biochemistry because you have this universal uh, and extremely accurate framework of understanding yin yang relationship and dynamics um, that makes learning biochemical pathways incredibly uh, straightforward in a way that it makes sense. You have a map, and I thought, oh my gosh, you know, if you're a medical student or someone, uh, you know, another uh, profession learning biochemistry without that map, it must be absolute torture because now you're just learning all of these uh, discrete pieces of information for these discrete pathways, and you're not being Given this idea that it might fit into an overarching organization, and that's just really hard because there's lots of biochemicals and there's lots of biochemical pathways. Um, so, so that was that was really fun. And then the next thing I learned, and I think this really informed a lot about what motivates me to um, to teach our you know acupuncturists and uh, other professionals um, how to communicate is that. I w- I thought I understood why um the medical profession and the public you know were a little bit confused about acupuncture and a little bit skeptical and when I learned functional medicine and biochemistry I learned that my idea was completely wrong <laughs> um and what I had thought was that a lot of it had to do with the the words that we used the language that we used and so you know we talk about like liver qi stagnation and you know rebellious stomach qi and and all of these things, and it, and it, you know, if if we if you haven't studied it, it does sound uh, strange, and it sounds weird, and it sounds implausible, and and so I was thinking, well, that you know, that makes sense, and I'm going to do this, uh, you know, master's degree in nutrition and functional medicine, biochemical pathways, and then when I speak with medical colleagues, then we'll be on the same page. And I remember speaking. Um, my my wife was in medical school at the time, and I was. I, I used to go out, you know, with her her friends, her colleagues, and you, I can't remember what we were talking about, but I was mentioning something about, you know, these pathways or this way of looking at an illness, and I got the same exact blank stare as when <laughs> we talked about tongues and pulses and liver tree stagnation. I thought, it's not the language. it's that's not That doesn't seem to be it. And what I think is it is the framework. And the important point to note here is not just that we – in Chinese medicine or any systems biology, are using a different framework from conventional medicine, but that the framework that conventional medicine uses doesn't acknowledge that they have a framework. They uh, believe that they are not using a map. They believe that they are studying reality, and this lack of awareness of their uh, perceptual p- position makes it really challenging unless you're aware of that to um, to have conversations um you know where you can when you can be on the same page
0: yeah and i think part of the problem as well now is that western medicine or allopathic medicine has become so specialized in a way that um there's no way of seeing of having like a holistic picture like Chinese medicine does. So, you know, I was having some problems and I went to see a specialist and she did a lot of investigations and it was something, the problem turned out to be something tangentially related to her specialty, but she was not able to fully treat it. And she was actually trying to apply the treatment that she would do to the problems that she knew.
1: Uh, Well, absolutely. Uh, And that's, that's one of the keys. And I think a lot of us are aware that uh, conventional medicine is overly specialized um, and even the doctors within that system would probably say the same thing often, um, but, but it kind of parallels what I said before about, you know, if, you, if you're learning biochemistry and you're not aware that there's an organizing principle to the body, then each piece of information that you l- look at, each molecule, each organ um, is its own thing. But if you have a map that includes the interrelationships, then you're asking different questions and you're able to see them. And one thing that I learned recently, which I think is it's really cool, uh, and I also think it's kind of important, is that this conversation we're having about different ways of looking at the body um, actually involve using our neurology. Differently, so you know, you and I li- really like to look at data. Um, a lot of that is processed through our the left hemisphere of, of our brain, and the left hemisphere of our brain looks uh, at concrete things, at physical objects, and it looks at them in, in isolation. And the right hemisphere is really uh, key for looking at interrelationships, looking at context, and looking at how things fit together. And so I can. You know, see a scenario where the um, the the brightest minds in conventional medicine are maybe extremely left brain, and then they create a culture of medicine of like, well, this is how medicine works. So then, really bright people go to medical school, and they they get this passed down. um, And really, you, you don't know what you don't know if you if you have a certain way of looking at things. You're not necessarily aware of how you're looking at things. And so it's um, th- that understanding has helped me see that it's not so much about trying to convince people with your words um, about, about needing to see the interrelationships, because really until you learn how to see differently, you're not going to be able to perceive it.
0: Yeah. The trying to convince people, I've, I've, I don't know if I'm just too cynical these days I because coming from, um, a computer science background. I got a lot of raised eyebrows when <laughs> I decided to train as an acupuncturist, and I I just don't explain myself anymore, you know. Um, and actually, that's why I really, really love that you are doing your evidence-based acupuncture because it is the eternal question. People that like come up to you and say, "But does this thing really work?" or "Does wives tell? Us? or "On the one hand, I don't have the energy to actually argue with people anymore." I'm like. Yeah, you know, but on the other hand, um, I love having the evidence to, when I have the energy to actually (laughs) have that argument, then I can back myself up.
1: No, absolutely. Um, Well, first of all, I I definitely agree with that. You know, we don't need to be uh, arguing and being defensive and trying to... um, yeah, defend ourselves all the time, really. You want to choose the conversations you want to have. Um, and and to be honest, you know, people are increasingly, they're really supportive of what we do. They need what we do. They want what we do. And the, you know, mainstream medicine is not fit for purpose when it comes to complex chronic illness, which is the majority of mm-hmm. morbidity and mortality in developed countries. So it's just it's just not fit for purpose. And, and the data shows really that for non-urgent things, avoiding that care is safer than seeking it. So we're, you know, we're in a case where if, you know, if, if someone is offering a placebo, that's just going to have a better cost-benefit analysis than a lot of what's being offered um, mainstream. But that having been said, yes, you know, I just, when I was in school, I um, I was interested in what the skeptical Perspective was, I think, partly because I was raised by a skeptic. Right, my my mom was a researcher, and she used to, you know, tell me that if if I took something and it worked too quickly, that it was just a placebo effect. Even when I was a kid, <laughs> um, so I was I was curious and open. And I remember um, picking up, I think it might have been Trick or Treatment that had come out, um, you know, at that, at that time to see what they had to say about acupuncture. And when I read the chapter, I was so disappointed and frustrated at how poor their argument was they they really had been quite lazy uh, and unscientific in their attempt to discredit what we were doing and then when I looked further I just couldn't see too many people uh, forming a good counterpoint or counter argument I guess you could say defense but really if we put our selves in the perspective of the public or our potential patients and we don't we're kind of you know don't have too much of an opinion about acupuncture and we're like okay well is there anything to it does it work and we go online and we see the skeptics saying that it's pre-scientific gobbledygook and that it's a theatrical placebo and it doesn't work and then the only other things we can find are talking about chi and flow and yin and yang and then we're kind of like okay, so the science people say it doesn't work, and then these other guys, I don't know what they're talking about. So there really just seemed to be a need for um, information to balance what the skeptics were saying using the language of science, not because that's the only language, but because it's a dominant language. Uh, And so part of the um, idea behind evidence-based acupuncture is really just to summarize the evidence for... Different conditions for which acupuncture is really helpful using a standardized format. You know, we do not get into esoteric discussions about Mm. Shen and Qi because that, you know, that's, those are really important conversations to have in, on other places on the internet. Uh, this is for, uh, busy practitioners, for doctors, for people who are preparing presentations, um, or even for students who are um, maybe doing an assignment and want a really nice bibliography to say, okay, what's, what's the evidence for acupuncture uh, for treatment for cancer pain? Well, okay, here it is. Here's how it works. You know, go. <laughs> um, and that opens the door for then the, let's say, the traditionally trained acupuncturist to have conversations with an oncology team, and to get patients in, and then to apply their framework. Right. So in this case, we're not using evidence-based acupuncture to argue about the framework. We're just demonstrating the data, and that's a strategic decision. Yes, and then
0: there's the levels of translation. I find because there's we we can present um, our evidence or our data, uh, and we move from let's say. PCM or, or, you know, Chinese medicine vocabulary to science vocabulary, but then there would be another step if you actually want to talk to the public. And I'm, I'm mentioning this because someone today on my Facebook, you know, that there's all this thing going on about the vaccines at the moment. <laughs> and someone was saying, oh, look, you know, um, should I even talk about Bill Gates' vaccines? Okay, <laughs> I'm going. Someone was saying, oh, look, you know, there's reported adverse effects, And I just wanted to say, but do you realize that an adverse effect, it could be if you get an itch, and the itch lasts 10 minutes. But uh, the person that was saying this didn't really, you know, in in their mind, they translated, okay, this was a Spanish person, so maybe there was also a language translation problem. But in their mind, they were translating adverse effect as something really, really bad and, and, you know, unchangeable and almost permanent. Yeah, there's a lot of levels of translation to be done there. Um, Do you ever explain um, to your patients, how do you explain to your patients what you think your diagnosis is?
1: That, um, I I try to tailor my explanations to the uh, perspective and models that the patient is using. So, Um, patients will have different levels of understanding um, that they're coming in with. Although I have to say here, where I'm treating in the Northeast of the United States, I have very highly educated patients. They're not necessarily doctors or um, having a science background. They're not even necessarily highly formally educated, but what they know about endocrine pathways is really very advanced and very impressive. And so, sometimes, you know, I I will use that with them. And then I will try to actually lead them away from it. Because those models, um, well, first, let me say that those biochemical models are still models, right? Models are maps, they're they're not the same as the territory. And so um, I find that patients might get become overly attached to their diagnoses and to their problems because they're looking at these um, these these labels, right? And so we, I can meet them where they're at and acknowledge that that's how they currently understand their problem and also let them know that I understand the pathways too and then maybe lead them out um, and help them become more resourceful because it can be empowering to learn about your physiology from that perspective, but it can also at the same time be disempowering If you feel then that this has control over you, Um, you know, if you have elevated thyroid antibodies and then you have leaky gut and you have all all these things, it can be empowering to understand that these processes may or may not be actually going on instead of being told that there's nothing wrong or that sort of thing. But at the same time, they can take on a life of their own uh, and become self-perpetuating and take us away from our inner resources that can guide our physiology and more healthy ways. Um, and otherwise if, if patients have, um, you know, different, I don't know if a patient has a a hobby or they have a a different interest, it's really helpful to utilize it. So if you can understand, um, what does the patient know and understand well, and what is their version of reality, then it can be, you can go a long way to use that when you're explaining what's going on and how it might get better.
0: So, because this is a podcast for newish acupuncturists, please promise me that this can be learned with practice.
1: <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> uh, well, of course, it it's, it totally can, and I think it's helpful uh, for us to understand that about ourselves as well. Because, um, you know, I think that one of the things that's so powerful about Chinese medicine is the its explanatory model, the metaphors that it uses can be healing in their own regards. So, you know, the, you, you know, e- even if you are a new acupuncturist, do you remember learning about the model of liver tea stagnation and how much sense that made to you? And that like almost, um, that the penny dropping of that inner knowing of that aha, where someone or something has ex- explained something so clearly that you have this immediate Knowing, um, so you are already learning how to do this, and I think when we get go through school, we're focused on what we need to learn. But the advantage that we all have, um, you know, especially for practitioners, if you are based, you know, many of your listeners listeners will be in the UK. If you're you're based uh, somewhere, um, you know, in in Europe or the United States or um, Australia, at where the TCM model is not your your native model, right? Then almost by definition, you are becoming aware that there are models because you're learning a way of looking at yourself and at, at patients that's different from what you grew up with. So you, by definition of going through that process, you are already aware uh, of, that there are very profoundly different ways of seeing things. And in order to go through the training, you've had to to really change how you see the world in order to understand it. And that gives you flexibility to keep doing that.
0: Absolutely. I remember very vividly on my first year, really trying to apply my, um, my small knowledge of uh, Western medicine to the Chinese theory. And I remember my lecture saying, it's great that you know all this stuff, but put it aside for now. Later on, you can integrate it. But right now you would do better just embracing the model that we're trying to teach you here
1: absolutely. and you know one thing I um, noticed or, you know when I've uh, traveled to different conferences and met different colleagues, particularly colleagues who were medically trained so either doctors or nurses or scientists who then um, learned chinese medicine and uh and acupuncture they all said the same thing unprompted which was that the first year of school it was it was like they were banging their head against a wall like they just could not understand they could not accept what they were being taught um and another aspect as well is that the way the kind of western linear rational mind works it is not like um Things it doesn't like things to be this way and that way. It wants things to be this way or that way. And, and Chinese medicine obviously works um, in the former that we can we can use five elements, we can use yin yang, we can use you know a uh, principles, and we can be flexible. And the 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 logical rational mind completely rejects that. Um, and then they said after the first year something changed, something softened, some some switch got turned on, and then it became. Okay, and they then they were able to learn um, what was going on, and I really think that that you know it's it's uh, a learning process, it's an emotional process, but it's a neuroplastic process. That mm-hmm. we, going back to viewing the whole first, and I, um, you know, kind of going back to this uh, this hemispheric model of left brain and right brain, I actually believe at this point in time that we are really meant to perceive the world and show up as the default with our right hemisphere uh, dominant so that um, we're seeing the whole, we're seeing connections and we're kind of there that we can shift into the left hemisphere to to answer a question and to solve a problem. And then we shift back out again. And, and Einstein has talked about things like that. And I think you can even see different smatterings of that in the, the chinese medical classics um and but we when we get so used to being in that different model especially you know folks who already went to medical school are probably already gifted in their ability to use their rational linear logical mind so they have a lot of unlearning to do um and then they can integrate what they what they know with the new information
0: i actually um i cannot reach it from here but behind me on the shelf i have a book i think it's called the master and the key, and it's
1: exactly about integration of <laughs> the master and his emissary. Yes, thank you. Yes, that one. Yep. So that this book, uh, I this book talks a lot about this subject um, from a philosophical perspective as well as a neurological perspective, and I actually think that this is one of the most important books that's come out in the last decade or two. Um, so yeah, that's definitely uh, for anybody who's a little bit intrigued by this way of looking at things, I can recommend that book a lot. And, and really, as I read it, applying it from the medical perspective, I thought, well, this makes just a lot of sense. Chinese medicine really, it, it approaches things from, from the right hemisphere by being able to take in the full picture first. And again, I'm going to say it's it's a, a healthier, I think, default starting point. Um, it's not to say that want, that these modes are incorrect or correct, but they're, you know, useful or helpful, depending on the context. And when you uh, have a patient walk into your o- office, it's good to be, you know, in that kind of connecting listening mode, which we talk about so much, um, rather than in the, okay, I'm I'm going to just look at the data, look at the numbers and see what box I can put them into.
0: Yes, absolutely. So you trained in the UK, um, but now you practice in the States. Yes, that's right. So, uh, what is the process uh, to kind of transfer a qualification from the UK to the States? Do you have to sit
1: board exams or? Uh, yes, you do. Um, you need to sit board exams. And um, the process has not been as straightforward as it could be, but I am working uh, on a, the Team, um, that's an international team to see if we can make streamline the process and get reciprocity and integration just to save time. You know, the hoops I had to to jump through to get my qualification recognized, it's really just a waste of effort because people who had the same exact qualification as me from the same school had already gone through the process. So we don't need to, you know, make it so difficult. So I've actually helped a few colleagues who've moved from the UK to the US navigate that um, so that they can sit their boards.
0: Right. So if anyone needs to do that, they know who to. <laughs>
1: oh, yeah. I, yeah and I know I know who to pass your, to pass your email on to.
0: Because um, in Spain, I know a few years ago, you could only do acupuncture if you were a medical doctor. Um, And now my understanding is that you can practice acupuncture, but there's a massive backlash at the moment where um, I think you cannot practice acupuncture in a health center because they've just decided um, to really go hard against what they called, you know, uh, complementary therapies.
1: Yeah, the Spanish medical skeptics have been busy.
0: They have indeed. It is a little bit um, terrifying if you ask me, but yeah, I'll cross that bridge if and <laughs> when I get to it. Um, right, so um, I was reading my notes, and I'm still laughing because recently on Facebook you said, and I'm I'm reading, idiopathic just means some idiot didn't take a proper history and do the proper testing. Uh, it made me laugh when I when I read it. <laughs>
1: I, that was actually a, a quote from a seminar that I was attending at the time, but it um, it it resonated with me. Not you know I am not a big fan of name calling. You know the general stance. You know I really think that and there, in terms of um, people to help, there are, are more than enough people who want our help and need our help. And if we're confident in our um, in our abilities and um, what we're doing, then we really don't need to be criticizing others. The reason why I shared that um, in addition to uh, you know, it being amusing is going back to this uh, this idea of models. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that <clears throat> I think shows a lot of the, the weakness of the conventional view of how the body works is that most of the diagnoses are idiopathic, which means that they don't know what causes them. And... I think that there's this uh, assumption that because they don't know what causes them, like the cause is unknowable or something like this. But I guess I get frustrated and feel like it is worth kind of poking at that flaw because the causes really, when you step back are really very knowable and very obvious and very clear. Um, And so the, the problem um, I think comes from, again, what perspective we're looking at. So when we look at the cause of illness, um, we can make a distinction between something called the proximate cause versus the ultimate cause. And the easiest way I've found to understand this is if you think about dominoes all lined up and then you're gonna push uh, the first domino over and then it has a chain reaction and the last domino falls. So the last domino could be the disease or the symptom, usually the disease. And so when uh, reductionist biomedicine is looking at the causes of disease, they tend to be looking at the proximate cause, which is the domino right before the domino, the last domino to fall. So, you know, I don't know it. uh, a heart attack is caused by a a lack of blood flow uh, to the coronary artery, to the muscle tissue. Okay. But then we might also say, okay, but, you know, a heart attack is also caused by poor social connection, um, too much work, poor sleep, poor diet, sedentary lifestyle, toxic environment, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we've both, you know, in in both cases, we're talking about causes. um, But, you know, by privileging what they can see under the microscope, and really, you know, I think this this has happened because the um, the early large successes of this approach used that thinking. So we are able to cure tuberculosis by identifying the tuberculinum infection and using an antibiotic to treat it, um, and so and also the kind of genetic. Illnesses, which are a small percentage of overall illness, but they do exist, and so uh, the cause of you know Down syndrome or the cause of cystic fibrosis is a swap in that DNA pair, and that leads to this. And so it's not that 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 way of looking at causes is never true. It's just it's not usually true. Um, And so um, and and so and so we need to get back. And so I think that it is worth kind of saying, you know, about that idiopathic joke. It's like, well. You know, if you if you step back and look, you can really see very clearly um some some causes that are addressable that we really need to address.
0: Yeah, it made me laugh. I I personally found it very funny. Um and I'll tell you why I found it quite funny, because I literally thought I am that idiot. And I don't know if this is something because um, you know, sometimes it's difficult as an acupuncturist to connect because you just work in a room on your own. If you're lucky, you might work with other professionals of health, where you can, you know, discuss with them. But I think a lot of people do say that sometimes they find themselves isolated. Um, and then you go online, and people are these days quite concerned about how they present themselves online. So I find personally. I quite often don't want to make myself vulnerable by saying, you know what, I I don't think I'm a great acupuncturist, you see it. I think eventually I could be, but right now, you know, I'm fairly fresh out of school. And the whole idiopathic thing for me is because sometimes I feel that my diagnoses are vague because I don't have the subtlety or the exp- the years of experience to get you know, to a proper sophisticated diagnosis. So I laughed at the joke. I didn't take it as a, as a slight. I think sometimes it's, it's good to really um, realize that there's room for improvement.
1: <laughs> well, th- this is true. I think um, it can be helpful to frame it. You know, if, you're, if we're new acupuncturists, we're you know, we're, we're learning, well, we're, whether we are new or seasoned, we are constantly learning, but maybe ask yourself not how specific is your diagnosis, but how helpful is your diagnosis? Um, because, you know, using functional medicine, as you said, you get a lot of data and I have definitely been distracted by that data, you know, and that's easy to happen that you, you have someone in front of you and you're, you're in that rational quantitative thinking brain and you miss like the big obvious, you know, going back to the causes of disease. Um, if we accept that, you know, lack of sleep and sedentary lifestyle and this and that, um, can contribute to a variety of diseases. Well, you know, once you get all this data in front of you, are you losing sight of that, of those, you know, and that maybe the less specific, uh, diagnosis can sometimes be more helpful. So I think, um, a key is that we want to be, uh, specific enough but not too specific
0: yeah I get that I get that so what would be your I would say three because I like the number but really there can be one or two or, or five pieces of advice for us fresh acupuncturists that graduated recently and are feeling a little bit wobbly at the moment um
1: yes okay so um, one one piece of advice is you know most of us, you become acupuncturists because we had a a problem on our journey um, that led us to this, that we got benefit, we got relief or someone that we know did. Uh, and so what's amazing then is that we have this opportunity where, you know, you're, we can always learn what we're using to help ourselves and our family to help others. And it gives um, meaning to going through, this journey and going through, um, these, uh, less stable times. Um, and just, so just remember to use, you know, use what you, what you learn, um, because that, that in itself, you know, just adopting that, that status, that sort of that stature, um, is really incredibly valuable. It, it helps you have, you know, it should help you have more confidence that you, you know, if you look at where you are compared to where you were five years ago, um, that you do Know something and have experienced something of immense value, um, even if you're you're new in your uh, in your journey. Um, I think another one, maybe a little bit more uh, of a practical thing. You know, we're all different in our personalities and styles and how what we will bring to our uh, acupuncture clinics and, and careers. But one thing I did find is that when I was training, um, i had heard the advice to specialize and I immediately, I immediately didn't resonate that. You know, I I just thought, I don't really care what diagnosis people have. I just want to help people. And because, because people can have, you know, the same, let's say the same patterns, but have different manifestations. I'm not interested in these superficial things. And when I was maybe after a year or two after practice, I thought to myself okay who do I enjoy seeing the most and who which patients do I find to zap my energy and I specialized and not necessarily so much clinically but just in my communication when I thought about the personality of the you know the patients where it doesn't feel like work where it's just a lot of fun and then I became yep. very um, intentional and specific in my communication, which uh, some people call this marketing. Um, and when I think about marketing as communication, then it's it's a lot more fun and a lot more, you can see how important it is. And when I became clear and more focused in my communication, who I was trying to attract and using things in my words to really deter the people who I'd find to be energy drains, um, I became busier I was able to charge more, and I had more fun. So, um, so I would say, you know, maybe maybe you've come into, you've graduated, and you already have um, a seasoned marketing mind. And what I'm saying is very basic. So, you know, that's fine. But if you're someone who's like, oh, you know, I I don't want to limit myself, um, I would just say to you, if you are more specific about the type of problem that you can solve, you're going to get better. You're going everything's going to improve. You're going to get better clinical outcomes, um, and you're going to just do a better job. So I just maybe um, reflect on that and resonate, you know, see where that fits in. It doesn't have to be a clinical specialty, although it can be, um, but it can just be a personality type or, um, you know, or geographical area, I suppose, but just have a think about that. Cause then you're going to um, resonate and attract more of what you, what you want. Um, and I guess um, uh, my last piece of advice is really, just to, to, to make the practice that your own and, and to kind of, you can make it a creative endeavor. You, there's no limit to what direction you can go with this in your practice because it is a framework, right? It's not, it, there isn't just one way to practice. And so you can bring to it um, your own spirit and your own authenticity. Uh, and that's really uh, an, a tremendous value. Yes, and that's something that I noticed
0: very, very early on from college, in college, from the get go, very quickly. Um, all of us in my cohort, we started going into different directions. So there was the person that loved Japanese style like acupuncture from the get-go. There was the person that did not want to hear about um Western medicine at all, only Chinese medicine. There was the person that liked to integrate the two of them because they were a nurse. And I thought that was really beautiful actually, that we we were both we were all going in our, you know, little kind of ways, following what our soul told us in a way
1: that's that's great i mean that's really i I think that just makes it a lot more fun i i believe that that is authentic to the tradition of chinese medicine as well um and i think that that's when we can we can do you know we can do the best and um and really you know have maximum impact
0: yes fantastic hopefully you know, this is um, cheering all of us newbies. <laughs>
1: yeah, and actually, one, one thing I'll, I want to maybe add um, as more, I suppose I would say more specific advice to the times, uh, is that the profession that we're in is one of the professions that is exponentially growing right now. So as certain things uh, are receding, retreating, going dormant, closing, um, there are doors opening, and we are already quite a bit away through of some open doors so you know to take heart uh in your chosen profession you know the uh demand awareness appreciation of what we do is flourishing right now so you know just um you know sit with that and go with that and um and you know stay uh stay positive
0: i love that thank you so much Great. Thank you very much, Mel. This has been really, really great fun. So for our listeners who wanted to find you, your website is www.harborintegrativehealth.com, isn't it? That's right. Yep. And then you're also on Facebook um, by your name. Yeah, that's right. That's your business page as well?
1: Uh, Yes. I'm Mel Hopper Koppelman, and then I'm Dr. Mel Hopper Koppelman on my page.
0: Fantastic. So, they can find you. Well, thank you so much. I hope we stay in touch because I would really like that. Yes. And
1: thank you so on. much for for the opportunity to uh, to to share and to speak with your uh, your audience.
0: Thank you. I'll speak to you soon, hopefully.
1: Thank you. Take care.